You're listening to Women Making Waves. Morgan Sieg is basing her thesis on tracing the integration of women in Antarctica. Linda and I met with Morgan and found out about her fascination with the icy continent. For the women I've interviewed who started their careers in the 60s and 70s, getting a foot in the door was the priority. I have found, importantly, that the way that women see their own histories varies a lot. Their experiences in the Antarctic were, by and large, some of the best experiences of their lives. I thought that I was in store for a wild and terrifying cold-temperature adventure. Morgan Sieg has been putting some very interesting questions to some very interesting women. She's been speaking to women who've worked in the Antarctic to find out how they integrated into this very male-dominated environment. Morgan is fascinated by how diversity and inclusion takes shape in different spaces. Morgan, you've been to the Antarctic yourself. What started your fascination with the continent? I grew up in New York City, which is an extreme environment in its own right. And when I was eight years old, my family briefly moved to the state of Kansas, where Dorothy Gale is from in The Wizard of Oz. Yes. It's a state of tornadoes and extreme weather. And when I was there, I became fascinated with the opposite extreme to what I had grown up with, with tornadoes and volcanoes and these natural environments that make people seem very small. And so by high school, I had fallen in love with earth science and thought that I would become an earth scientist. In my high school yearbook, uh, graduating seniors are allowed to list what they plan their life ambition will be. And mine was to see a volcano, a tornado, and Antarctica. And I did not become an earth scientist, but I did wind my way around to Antarctica eventually. So you could have been chasing tornadoes. That could have been the route that your life took. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) A bit dangerous. But then the Antarctic is very dangerous as well. How did you end up going there? When I was in my early 20s, I saw a documentary called Encounters at the End of the World by the director, Werner Herzog. And that documentary really changed the way I thought about the Antarctic. I had known that it was a place where scientists went to study this fascinating natural environment. But this documentary was about the everyday people who work there, the people who drive the shuttle buses, the electricians, the uh, firefighters, people who keep stations running and support the scientists. And I was really intrigued by an interview with a young man who was working in the galley in the dining hall. And I remember watching his interview and thinking, I could do that job. (laughs) And I had a real light bulb moment where I thought, this is a documentary. It's a real job. I could really do that job. And so I applied for that job. Uh, It took me a couple years to get up the nerve to actually apply. And eventually I did get the job. And I spent my first season working in the galley at McMurdo Station. Presumably it's a small environment, though. You're mixing with scientists and all of the people at the kind of sharp end of, of being out there. It is a small environment for a girl from New York City, but it is a huge environment 
compared to what most people, I think, think of the Antarctic. McMurdo Station has a maximum of 1,200 people living there during the peak of the Austral summer. So it's really a town. It's a town that has plumbers and electricians and cooks and nurses and doctors and, and everything that you need for a small town to survive. And you, and you wouldn't actually realise that, would you? Because the whole point is you have to run that whole environment, don't you? So you have to have your dishwashers, you have to have your plumbers. The US program certainly does. There are other programs, for example, the British Antarctic Survey, which has a much smaller support staff and the scientists do more of their own support in that sense. But the U.S. program is massive, and it's with the U.S. that I went down. I'm American. And so they do have this massive logistics hub where people like me supported the work that scientists were doing behind the scenes. People describe McMurdo Station as being like a cross between a university campus and a small mining town. It has dormitories. It has the feel of a campus. There are three bars and several gyms and a library. But it also has the look of frankly, fairly ugly mining town in the midst of, in my opinion, the most spectacular natural environment in the world. So you spent three months there, is that right? And and then what happened after that? My first season was three months and I loved it and I wasn't done. I had come partway through the season replacing somebody who had broke her leg and I felt that I hadn't really had the full Antarctic experience yet. So I decided I was definitely going to go back for a second season and I applied for the job as lead dining attendant. And so I <laughs> went back for a second season as uh, one of the head dishwashers, essentially. And um, that was another incredible experience. For my second season, I went down on the first flight of what's called Windfly, which is the winter fly-in period. So this is the flight that sends down the summer crew that's going to essentially open up the station for the summer. So station is very small at that point. I think that when we arrived... We brought the station to about 150 people, if I remember correctly. And so it really has the feel of a much smaller remote outpost at that point. And at that time in the season, it was late August. The weather is really bad. It's incredible. It's pretty spectacular and awe-inspiring. We had, I think, about four hours of sunlight per day in the first weeks that that I was there. And... um, You are allowed to walk around outside to a certain degree. There are some hikes that are designated as permissible for station support to walk on, but you do need to sign out with the firefighters to let them know that you're heading out in case you should not return. They'll know where you've been, and you take a walkie-talkie. And one evening, a friend of mine and I walked out of the station towards our local active volcano, Mount Erebus, It's about three and a half miles out from station, and you can't see station when you're out there, so you really feel like you're in Antarctica. And we looked up towards Mount Erebus, this active volcano, which is one of only few in the world that has an open crater. So that means that it's puffing smoke over Ross Island, where this station is. And uh, it means that there are scientists in the summer season who actually camp up near the rim, and they step up to the rim and can look down and see lava bubbling inside this crater. It's incredible. I mean, viscerally, as you know, a person who's interested, but also for science. So in any case, we walked out towards this volcano and looked up, and coming out from behind the volcano was the Aurora Australis, this beautiful silver curtain waving across the sky. It's incredible. So that's something that's impregnated in your mind forever really yeah I'll never forget it what a great experience slightly terrifying though Mm. that terrifies me Susie the idea of being in the middle of nowhere that's a bit like being in space and cut off from your spaceship but it seems like a big camp but like astronauts were you given any training before arriving at this camp No, and it's interesting that you mention like space because Antarctica is often used as an analog for outer space. Um, So many different kinds of researchers rely on that analog, whether they're looking at um, 
the microbiome in the soils to uh, try to sort out what may, might be in the soil on Mars, or whether it's social scientists like psychologists and uh, medical researchers who are looking at what happens to these small isolated communities in Antarctica, and how what can that tell us about what space exploration might have uh, in store for us. Um, but you asked about preparation. And the answer is no. McMurdo is a comfortable enough home for the people who live there that you can really get by without any training, frankly. But as a girl from New York City, I didn't know that. And I thought that I was in store for a wild and terrifying cold temperature adventure. So in the month that they gave me to prepare on my own before my flight took off, I undertook a a running routine to make sure that I was in shape. I ate a high-calorie diet, and I was ready to prove myself among the people of McMurdo. And of course, when I arrived, it didn't need any of that. That's That's really interesting. And I should say, for scientists who are working out in the field away from station, and also for support workers like myself who might be given an opportunity to go out into the field, they do have to undergo training at McMurdo Station. It's a program called Happy Camper Training, (laughs) where you spend a night out really on the ice, on the McMurdo Ice Shelf, um, which is several miles from station. And there you learn to set up what's called a Scott tent and how to use various kinds of equipment in the remote field. And you have the option of either sleeping in one of the Scott tents or of building yourself a shelter, basically a a ditch inside this glacier and sleeping inside of it. And that was just a life-changing experience for me to sleep inside this glacier and understand what that was like for people 100 years ago, what it's like now. It's incredible. You're doing a PhD and your work at the moment is looking at women who have gone to the Antarctic. Do many women go there even now? It depends on how you define many. (laughs) So yes and no. I think the average percentage of populations in many countries would be about 20 to 35 percent women. It does vary a lot by country because people who go to Antarctica to work as scientists or as support workers go through national Antarctic programs. So there's a lot of national culture in each of these programs and um, gender balances in the workplace also translate onto the ice in that way. But I believe in the U.S. and the U.K. and and other probably Anglophone countries, I think the number is around 20 to 35 percent. But interestingly, um, the next generation is looking like it may have a much larger percentage of women. I'm a co-chair of the International Association of Polar Early Career Scientists, and our membership, which is thousands of people across the world, is 55 percent female. The oh, that's interesting. Is our, the president of Apex is a woman, and most past presidents of Apex have been women. So there is a base of young women who are preparing to take the helm of these fields. But of course, there have always been leaky pipelines, and, and it's not a given that, that this will translate into 50% mm-hmm. of senior researchers being women in the future. We do have some incredible role models, though. In the last couple of years, uh, several of the world's leading institutions of polar research have been led by women. The U.S. program, the Korean program, uh, the German program, the International Arctic Science Committee, and currently the International Scientific Committee of Antarctic Research. And, of course, the British Antarctic Survey is led by uh, Dame Jane Francis right now. So I noticed on your profile that you mentioned that women integrated into the Antarctica, mostly a lot of... Russian women were first allowed onto the Antarctic vessels, and that was as early as 1956. And then came along USA in 1969, and the UK not until 1986. That's quite a stark difference between all the different countries. Why do you think that Russia have got in early? This is one of my favourite 
things to think about when it comes to the Antarctic, the way that these national cultures have been imported into what is often considered to be a blank space. You import your infrastructures and your material culture, but also your ideas about what a place like Antarctica is all about and who should be there and what they should be doing. And so when it comes to the Russians, they did send the first woman scientist to the Antarctic in 1956. And that has, in my opinion, or in my view as a researcher, everything to do with Soviet um, workplace culture at the time. I am not an expert on Russian history, and I don't speak Russian, so um, the amount that I've been able to learn so far is limited. But I do know that although men and women may not have been considered equal in the home in the USSR, in the early and mid-20th century, men and women had greater equality in the workplace in the USSR than they did in other places, for example, the UK and the US. And so um, the state polar research organization from the early 20s, the leader of that organization, was actively encouraging women to participate in polar research and exploration. And so the woman who would become the first woman scientist to work in the Antarctic, Maria Klonova, she had previously worked in the Arctic as well on vessels and was a very influential scientist already by the 50s. And so I think it was probably a given in the Soviet Antarctic research program that influential and qualified women scientists would be included on these vessels. From there, it, it seems that women were not necessarily integrated fully into the Russian Antarctic program either, into, for example, interior uh, stations in the interior of the continent. But there is um, the Soviet political culture had a lot to do with who was allowed to go to the Antarctic and in what capacity. That's fascinating, really, mm, isn't it? It is. You've interviewed a lot of people from over the past few decades, women who've been out there. Did you find that they were treated differently in the past to the way that they're treated now? Are you getting very different perspectives from these women? So I'm just in the stage where I'm um, synthesizing and analyzing all my data. I've done about 60 interviews and about 40 of them I would consider oral history interviews. So I don't have any conclusions yet. And I can let you know once the thesis is written and I do have conclusions but I have found, importantly, that the way that women see their own histories varies a lot, and that some women perceived their gender to matter substantially in their early and mid-careers, and some women did not. And I've had a few women offer really good insights into why that might be, and I feel very lucky to be doing this research in 2016, 17, and 18 because of the Me Too movement. And that I've had a couple of women say to me that they had not previously considered gender to have been a determining factor in their careers. And now they're looking back and wondering if maybe they hadn't been paying attention to structures that did exist and to experiences that they may have had that other people might have been attuned to. That maybe that was an important strategy for them to survive in science at the time. Mm. And that lets me know that there's selection bias in my interviews as well. But I'm interviewing women who did succeed in the field. And uh, Marcia McNutt, who's the head of the U.S. National Academies of Science, she has a great quote where she says, science needs to be selecting for the best and the brightest, not the best and the brightest and the toughest and the most determined. And that perhaps in the past, we have been selecting in part not only for women who were extremely well qualified and good at their jobs, but also women who were able to tolerate a certain sort of atmosphere that others might not have been able to. And so in terms of how that translates into the next generation, I think each generation has their own priorities, their own battles to fight, their own perspectives about their place in their own fields. And women today, in their early careers, many of us in the sort of Me Too era, 
are attuned to different kinds of challenges. Harassment and assault are top of the agenda, so are things like implicit bias and leaky pipelines. Whereas for the women I've interviewed who started their careers in the 60s and 70s, getting a foot in the door was the priority. So I interviewed a a woman in her mid-career right now who told me that she had been frustrated in her early career that senior researchers, including some senior women, were dismissive of her concerns about the way that um, women fit into the polar research landscape and about certain aspects of the environment, but that when she brought a grad student down to the ice at one point, they were on an airplane headed from the logistical base at McMurdo to one of the field camps, and the planes had no women's toilets. And the young woman had complained, this is ridiculous, why aren't there women's toilets on the plane? And this woman who I was speaking to said she had turned to the woman and said, oh, deal with it, it's not a big deal. And that every generation fights their battles and has to focus on what's in front of them to the exclusion of things that are seen as second priority. And then the next generation is able to take those up as battles to improve the the environment of polar research and to really work towards true gender equality in the field. What stands out for you when you've been speaking to these women? Is there a message that comes across to you from those interviews? I think that as a researcher looking at the history of of gendered change in Antarctic science, it's very easy to focus on the challenges and the ways that they've been overcome. But what the interviewees often tell me is that those challenges are not the most important parts of their own histories to them that their experiences in the Antarctic were by and large some of the best experiences of their lives, and that working in the field is what enabled them to make such tremendous scientific contributions. And they really have. From as early as the 1960s, women have been making incredible contributions to Antarctic science, to our understanding of how the polar regions are impacting the rest of the world. So I've interviewed women who have worked in the dry valleys of Antarctica, which are part of the 2% of the continent that's not covered by ice. I interviewed a woman who was part of the uh, Antarctic search for meteorites, which goes out into the field. They walk around or travel on snowmobiles looking for meteorites that have landed on the Antarctic ice, sometimes coming from Mars. Uh, They have incredible stories to tell. I interviewed a woman who began her career in the Antarctic flying across the Transantarctic Mountains on airplanes and collecting remote data about what was underneath the ice. They really have had incredible experiences, life-changing for them, and also deeply influential to Antarctic science as a whole. And one very last question. Did going out to the Antarctic change your life? Oh, it absolutely did. On a personal level, it taught me so much about my own capabilities and what I'm really passionate about and what I wanted to do with my life. And of course, washing dishes at McMurdo Station is what eventually led me here to the University of Cambridge as a Gates Scholar. Thank you very much, Morgan C. I have to say that one of the last things it would ever occur to me to want to do is go to the Antarctic. What about you, Susie? No, there's no way in my life that I'd ever thought about going to the Antarctic. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that 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 was one of the things that she wanted to do from, from a child. But what a great person. I mean, we both really enjoyed doing that interview with Morgan. She's lovely. It's one of those interviews that you you every second counted. And I was fascinated that she had actually interviewed Rosemary Askin. And Rosemary Askin had been on an expedition 
into the Antarctic in 1970, and on that expedition was my <laughs> second cousin, who's a male, of course, because Rosemary was the only female, and she was one of the fir- I think the first woman to go really deep into the Antarctic. And she was on that expedition. I spoke to my second cousin, and uh, he remembered her really well and said, "Oh, she was great, really, really bright." And just fitted in perfectly. You know, there was no drama that she was a woman. Because in those days, it was a big thing. That's a really small world, isn't it? Do you have lots of scientists in your family, Linda? Oh, yes. The the scientists (laughs) hanging around every corner, frankly. (laughs) But that is a small world, isn't it? It is. It is, when you hear that kind of thing. So, yeah, I thought she was fascinating. And she's a Gates scholar as well, Gates Cambridge scholar. The Gates Scholarship is uh, is run by Bill and Melinda Gates. So uh, she'd applied for that scholarship and, and got it and good on her. I thought she was fascinating, really engaging person. Mm, very measured and really determined to get her PhD and to really find out more about women in the Antarctic and scientists in general. And, and good luck to Morgan. All the best. You're listening to Women Making Waves. 